I've told you before that I used to work for my father-in-law's lighting company called Lights Up. It was one of the coolest jobs ever that I've had. And we had these 16,000 watt lighting balloons that we would fill with helium and they would float in the air and provide lighting. And so here's a picture from the movie Titanic. Um, Unfortunately, I did not get to work on this movie because that would have been a real treat because I love Titanic. The only beef that I have with Titanic is that there was room for Jack on that piece of board that Rose was on. There's plenty of room for two people on that. So that's my only beef with the movie. I love it. But this was before I joined my father-in-law's lighting company, so he was there. And part of the reason the movie Titanic cost so much money to make is because five or six of these balloons were destroyed down in Mexico because the winds came up and destroyed them. So they had to obviously pay us back. So we're partly responsible as to why it was so expensive to make. And uh, here's another picture of Titanic you can see right there. Uh, kind of get a flavor of what these balloon lights were like. So we would provide uh, lighting for Hollywood movies, TV shows, uh, music videos. I did a lot of rap and hip-hop videos in the late 90s, Puff Daddy and Ice Cube and things like that. And we did them for parties that they would have and, and events. And here's another pic here of uh, the balloon. This is on New York Street at Universal Studios, that little circle down there. You can see a picture of me standing there so you can see how big the balloon is. And then we would, this winch would, and the helium would, would lift it up uh, into the air and it would provide light. Here's another picture uh, from, uh, this is New York Street again. This is at Universal Studios. This is from the movie Richie Rich's Christmas Wish, which I assume is one of your favorite movies. And you probably own it on DVD. What's fun about this spot here is if you go around the corner to the left, you have the town square area, which was where they filmed the the very first Twilight Zone, but also where they filmed Back to the Future. So the main town square area in all of the Back to the Future movies is just right around the corner from there. So there's a picture of New York Street. You can kind of see what it was like. Now, imagine flying eight or nine of these balloons at a large rock music festival that goes by the name of Woodstock. Our company provided balloons for Woodstock 1999. That was fun, let me tell you. I was a seminary student who attended Woodstock for work. In case you're wondering, Woodstock 99 was just like its predecessors, Woodstock 94, and the original Woodstock in 1969. They were just like them in every way except for one thing. The riot that occurred at Woodstock 99. You might recall all of the drama that broke out at Woodstock 99. Because of the inflated prices of food and bottled water, the fans started a riot and they started burning everything in sight on the last night. Ironically, they started burning everything during the final set by the band the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Giant speakers were being lit on fire, vendor booths were set ablaze, porta-potties were burning, tents and camping equipment were being burned, trailers, these big semi-trailers that brought in all the equipment and food and everything, they were set on fire, fights were breaking out, and sadly, various assaults of various kinds were happening to people. I mean, it was crazy. Woodstock 99 put the total in total depravity. 
And there I was, in the middle of 400,000 people with these giant 16-foot, 16,000-watt lighting balloons floating in the air for all those 400,000 drunk and crazy people to attack. People were screaming. It was chaos. There was fear. You could feel the fear in the air. There was fire and smoke everywhere. And I was caught up in all of this craziness and about to be swept away in all of it. The worst day and night of my life. But we managed, by God's grace, to get our balloons down and get all of our equipment out with no issue. Now, contrast Woodstock 1999 with my wedding in 1997. We had one of these balloons at our wedding, the best day and night of my life. It was calm, peaceful, joyful, no fires, no chaos, just me and Heather and the reggae band that we hired to play music. It was wonderful. As crazy as Woodstock 99 sounds, we're going to see something even crazier in Mark's gospel today. Jesus is going to take three of his closest friends up on a mountain, and Moses and Elijah will suddenly appear. And then Jesus' clothes are going to go from needing to be washed to 16,000 watt brightness. And then, as if Jesus looking like a 16,000 watt light bulb isn't enough, God the Father will speak from heaven and tell these three disciples that he loves Jesus, his beloved son, and that they should listen to him. That's crazier than all three Woodstocks put together. So we're halfway, we're at the halfway mark of Mark now, and if this were a show on Netflix, we'd be halfway through our binge watching And things begin to change at this point in the series. The first half of Mark focused on who Jesus is. Now on the back half, we will begin to see more and more of what Jesus came to do. And so from here on out, in every episode that we watch, if you will, we will see Jesus constantly speaking of his impending suffering, death, and resurrection. And as we saw last week, as Jesus takes up his cross... So we we too must take up our cross if we are to follow Jesus as disciples. It's suffering and then glory. That's the pattern in Scripture. That was the pattern for Jesus. It's the pattern for us. Suffering comes first and then glory. The cross then becomes the focal point as this series that we're watching begins its descent to the end of our episode playlist. The closer we get to the end of our binge watching of Jesus, the cross will come closer and clearer. And what we'll see today, as we get caught up in and swept away by the love that God the Father has for His Son Jesus, what we'll see today is this. God's children live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of their heavenly Father. God's children live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of their heavenly Father. That means then that if you are trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation, then you have been adopted into God's family and you are now one of His beloved children. And you have now been swept up in the love that God the Father has for Jesus. And so all the crazy things that happen on this mountain in Mark chapter 9 has everything to do with you and everything to do with me. All the crazy stuff we're going to see today has everything to do with you. 
what God says to Jesus on this mountain, he says to you and to me today, right now, you are my beloved sons and daughters. There may not be a thick cloud in this sanctuary. We may not hear God's audible voice through these speakers. But God is saying these things to us today. All this craziness that we're going to see is just the crazy good news of the gospel. So look at Mark chapter 9, and we will begin with verse 2, and hear the word of the Lord. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So when Mark tells us here that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain and there was a cloud, our ears should perk up. We should be expecting something to happen here because Jesus has taken three of his closest friends up on top of a mountain and a gigantic cloud enveloped them. Now why should our ears perk up? Because Yahweh, the Lord, appeared in a cloud on top of Mount Sinai in the Old Testament when he gave Israel the Ten Commandments. Yahweh spoke from the cloud, just like God speaks here in Mark chapter 9. But when the Lord spoke to the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, they were scared to death. Listen to what it was like in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, When the cloud, the glory of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, when the glory descended on top of Mount Sinai and he spoke. The nation had been preparing themselves like a bride for a wedding day. They had washed and bleached all their clothes, if you will. They were ready. They're about to enter into a marriage covenant with Yahweh at Mount Sinai. And so listen to a few excerpts out of Exodus chapters 19 and 20. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord, Yahweh, had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And then right after this, God speaks the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel, and it says this in Exodus 20. Listen to how they respond hearing God's voice as he gives the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verses 18 through 20 says this. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. 
And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So when the people enter into this marriage covenant with the Lord, with Yahweh at Mount Sinai, they hear the Lord speaking the Ten Commandments from the cloud, and they were afraid. They're scared to death. It was like Woodstock 99. There's smoke, there's fire, there's screaming, there's fear, and they're scared to death. There's thunder and lightning and a thick cloud, and people stood far away, and they told Moses, you can speak to us, but please, please don't let God speak to us anymore, or we will die. And people talk about, they want to hear the audible voice of the Lord. No, you don't. That's the law. That's what the law of God does. God's law thunders. God's law, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments, God's law booms. God's law exposes our sinfulness. And God's law also reveals his holiness and his power and his glory. But at the same time, it exposes our sin. So Israel hears the law thundering from the cloud on Mount Sinai and their hearts are exposed and they know that they are sinners and they're scared to death. They don't want to hear Yahweh's voice anymore. Now, Fast forward, because we're binge-watching Jesus, so get your remote and fast forward, because this was a flashback. Fast forward now to the mountain where Jesus is in Mark chapter 9, where he is transfigured before Peter, James, and John. Jesus is there, and then suddenly, just like God's glory appeared on top of Mount Sinai, God's glory appears again as Jesus is transfigured before them. This glory, this dazzling brightness even makes Jesus' clothes light up. In fact, Mark tells us in verse 3 that Jesus' clothes became radiant, like a a 16,000 watt light bulb, intensely white, Mark says, whiter than 16,000 bottles of Clorox bleach could make clothes. So Jesus is there, and the weather report on the mountain that day is cloudy with the chance of Moses. And Elijah. Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus, and there's a reason why it's them and not, say, Noah or Abraham or David. Moses and Elijah show up because of what they represent the law and the prophets. Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. And the reason they're there with Jesus and why they will suddenly just disappear after talking with Jesus is because of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, for I have not not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The reason that the weather report on the mountain that day was cloudy with the chance of Moses and Elijah is because Jesus came to fulfill all the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. Everything in the law, everything in the prophets is pointing to Jesus and he came to fulfill all of it. Every page of the Old Testament is pointing to and preparing us for Jesus. He came to do what Adam did not do in the garden, and he came to do what the nation of Israel could not do because they kept failing miserably. Sinful man cannot fully obey God's law, even though that's what God expects of each one of us. In order to be made right with God, you have to be perfect. 
In order to be made right with God, you have to be perfect. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now think about this. Where is Jesus when he says this? He's on top of a mountain. He's on top of a mountain. It's called the Sermon on the what? Mount. What is Jesus doing here in the Sermon on the Mount when he says you've got to be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect? What he's doing is he is once again giving the law, giving the demands of the law. And Jesus does not expect us to respond to his call of perfection by thinking, I can do it. You can do it. We can do it. No, that's not how he expects us to respond. He is doing what Moses was doing with the law on Mount Sinai. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing us God's holiness and God's glory and demonstrating our inability to meet God's holy standard. We are to feel our legs get knocked out from under us when we hear Jesus say, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's supposed to knock the wind out of us and the pride. And we are to despair because we cannot do it. But then Jesus comes in and says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill the law, to obey the law on our behalf because we can't do it. That, my friends, is crazy good news. As Jared Wilson says, that the law could be fulfilled, what a miracle. The law is good But Jesus is better. The law is good because it is from God and it is good for what God meant it to do. It is good the way a correct diagnosis is good. But while the law is good like a diagnosis is good, Jesus is better than the law like a cure is better than the diagnosis. The miracle of the transfiguration then, while historical, is also symbolic of the miracle of God's forgiveness of sins the removal of the burden of the law and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to sinners. That's the miracle that's happening here. It's real, it's historical, but it's also symbolic. Symbolic of the miracle of God's forgiveness of our sins and the removal of the heavy burden of the law which says, be perfect as I am perfect. And it's the good news of the imputation, the gift of Christ's righteousness to sinners like us. And so the law came in glory in the Old Testament, in the thick glory cloud with fire and thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai. And God spoke and the people were afraid and they asked Moses to ask God if he would stop speaking to them because they were terrified. In other words, they're saying, we'll listen to you, Moses, but not Yahweh. His voice terrifies us. Please tell him to stop. But here in Mark, on the mountain that day, in the thick cloud, God's voice comes again. But this time it is not thundering and producing fear. It's gentle. It's kind. There's warmth. It's a soft tone. It's the soft voice of God the Father doting on his son Jesus in verse 7 where he says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
Peter and James and John are in God's presence and they do not die. What a miracle. They are terrified, yes, but they don't die. The nation of Israel was terrified when they saw the white-hot glory of God at Mount Sinai. And so Moses had to build a perimeter. He had to put up a fence, if you will, around the mountain to keep people back, lest they were dumb enough to try to run up the mountain to see God and therefore die. They couldn't be in Yahweh's presence or they would die. But Peter, James, and John are now on this mountain, surrounded with the 16,000 watt glory of the triune God shining in and through and around Jesus, and they are afraid, but they do not die. They are sinners standing right in the light of God's glory, and they don't die. They actually get to hear God the Father adore and shower His Son with love. And so Peter suggests that he build a tent for Jesus and for Moses and Elijah. Mark tells us in verse 6 that because Peter was scared, he just opened up his mouth and didn't even really know what he was saying by suggesting that they camp out in tents. The word that Peter uses for tent here is the word tabernacle. Now, recall what happened after the nation of Israel was scared at the foot of Mount Sinai. They built, what, the tabernacle for the presence of Yahweh. Yahweh's glory came and resided in the tabernacle at the tent of meeting so that he could be near his people and so that they could draw near to him and be close to him through the sacrifices. And So Peter knew his Old Testament. Peter was book smart. He knew how the book of Exodus ended. Exodus 40, the last few verses, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now Moses, as mediator between Israel and God, Moses, as, as mediator, sometimes could be in God's presence. But here at the end of Exodus, Moses tells us, I wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it because the glory of the Lord filled their tabernacle. So on that day, it was cloudy with no chance of Moses. No chance of Moses coming in because the cloud was there, the glory was thick, it was too much. And so Peter knows how the book of Exodus ends, that Moses couldn't go in there that day. And being book smart as he is, but gospel stupid, Peter says, we should build a tabernacle to protect us meaning Peter, James, and John, protect us from the glory of God because we're not going to survive this thing. But guess what happens immediately after Peter suggests that they build three tabernacles to protect them from the glory of God? The cloud overshadowed them just like it overshadowed the tabernacle and it did not consume them. They did not die. They are actually in this moment caught up in and swept away by God's love for his beloved son Jesus. And whereas at the end of Exodus, Moses could not enter the tent because of God's glory, here in Mark chapter 9, Peter, James, and John can linger in God's glory and they don't die. They are overshadowed by the glory cloud and they live. Now why? Why do they not die? How can they be in God's presence in his white, hot glory as Jesus is transfigured before them? How can they be there and not die? The answer is, is the voice that comes from the cloud. Look at verse 7 again. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Peter, James, and John are not consumed and obliterated by God's glory because of Jesus, because of their relationship to Jesus, because God the Father is pleased with his son, Jesus. And that's why Moses and Elijah disappear, because it's all about Jesus. It's not about Moses. It's not about Elijah. It's about Jesus, his work, his life, his death, his resurrection. Peter wanted to build three tents, three tabernacles, but he did not know that Jesus in the incarnation was already there. The tabernacle was already there standing in front of him. As John says in his gospel in chapter 1 verse 14, and the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's saying, I've seen his glory on a mountain. He has tabernacled among us. My friend Peter wanted to build a tent, a tabernacle, and then we realized it's standing before us. The word was made flesh. The same word that Peter uses for tent is the same word that John uses for dwelt when he says dwelt among us. Jesus tabernacled among us. He tented among us in the incarnation. And so now Moses is gone at this point in the story, poof. And then Elijah is gone, poof. And only Jesus is left. Jesus is the one who bridges the gap between sinners and God. It's not about trying to obey the law to be good enough. It's not about our righteousness. It's not about our attempts at trying to fix our problem of sin. And so now the weather report changes. Now it's cloudy with a chance of marriage. The Son of God has come to redeem His bride. That's what's happening here on the mountain in Mark 9. Cloudy with a chance of marriage because God the Father is pleased with His beloved Son, Jesus, because Jesus will fulfill the law and lay down His life for His bride. In Exodus 19 and in Exodus 20, it's do this and live. There's fear, there's trembling, Here in Mark 9, God says, Jesus is doing what you could not do, and I am pleased with him. So listen to him. When the people entered into the marriage covenant with Yahweh at Mount Sinai, they heard Yahweh speaking the Ten Commandments, and they were afraid. So it was just like Woodstock 99. There's smoke, there's fire, there's screaming, there's fear. They are scared to death. There was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud and people stood far away and they told Moses, you can speak to us all you want, but please, Moses, don't let God speak anymore or we will die. But when Jesus was transfigured on that mountain that day, they heard God speak. It was God declaring his pleasure with his son Jesus and how he had come to win his bride through his life death, and resurrection. It was actually wedding day joy. There's wedding day joy here on the mountain. As Alec Motier says, his Calvary joy was wedding day joy. He was winning his bride. This is how much we mean to him. It's how much we mean collectively to him, and it's how much we mean individually to God. He was winning his bride. It's Calvary joy. 
The joy that Jesus had even as he was being crucified in that horrendous moment where he's taking our sins upon himself, upon the cross, there's wedding day joy. The way a groom cannot wait to see his bride and say, I do, and kiss her and go on the honeymoon. This is the joy that Jesus feels for his bride, for his church. Now he feels individually towards you. And you have to have that imagery in the background. As you hear Jesus in the Gospels talk about his death and resurrection. As he, in a moment, he'll come down the mountain and he will talk about his death and resurrection. And you have to have this in the background. That this is how much we mean to him. That he was winning his bride through the cross. God is speaking from the cloud. And when he does that, it's an invitation to us. God is inviting us to the wedding supper of the Lamb. He's inviting us to a wedding celebration. If we will listen to Jesus, we are welcome at the wedding. We can be a part of the bride of Christ if we will listen to Jesus. In fact, for Jesus, every day is his wedding day. That's what Puritan John Owen said. He said, his heart is glad in us without sorrow. And every day while we live is his wedding day. The thoughts of communion with the saints were the joy of his heart from eternity. His heart is glad in us this morning, Grace. Without sorrow, he's not disappointed with us, even though we all let him down this week, didn't we? He's glad in us every single day. It's his wedding day. The joy that a groom feels. You wake up in the morning, today's the day. Every single day for Jesus is his wedding day. It's how he feels about us. It's how much we mean to him. For all of eternity, there has been one all-consuming thought of God, and it's this, to have communion with us, his bride. We were the joy of his heart from all eternity. Let that sink in. 20 million years ago into eternity past, His heart was beating and waiting to have communion with us. In eternity past, the plan of God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit was that Jesus would come and redeem his bride. And here on the mountain in Mark chapter 9, God the Father is expressing his pleasure in his beloved son and what he is doing to win his bride. The invitation is there, Grace. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The invitation is there to join God's family. The invitation is there to become a Christian. What is a Christian? J.I. Packer answers it in his book, Knowing God. It's a book that the elders had been going through with a group of men for the last year. And this week, it just so happened that we landed on chapter 19, which is worth the price of the book by J.I. Packer's knowing God and immediately just flip to chapter 19 and just soak in all the goodness. Here's what J.I. Packer says. What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as his father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Christians are his children, his own sons and daughters, his heirs. And the stress in the New Testament is not on the difficulty and danger of drawing near to the holy God, 
but on the boldness and confidence with which believers may approach him. A boldness that springs directly from faith in Christ and from the knowledge of his saving work. To those who are Christ's, the holy God is a loving father. They belong to his family. They may approach him without fear and always be sure of his fatherly concern and care. This is the heart of the New Testament message. And this is the heart of what's transpiring here on the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. We can draw near to God without fear because we are God's children. And because we are God's children and because we have been adopted into his family, we, and this is so crazy, listen, this is crazy good news, because we have been adopted into God's family and we are his beloved children, because of that, we get caught up in and swept away by the pleasure that God the Father has for his own son, Jesus. We get caught up in the love that God the Father and Jesus have for one another. We get swept away in that. And that means then that God loves us just as much as he loves Jesus. As much as God the Father loved Jesus 20 million years ago in eternity past, that's exactly how much he loves you right now today at this moment. It's it's crazy good news. That's why the word gospel means good news. And that means then that God's children live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of their heavenly Father. Just like what Jesus is experiencing here in Mark 9 on the Mount of Transfiguration. We are caught up in that perpetual favor. Never goes away, God's favor. The unabated delight, it doesn't diminish or dwindle on any bit. God looks at us and he rejoices over us. Because we are in union with his son and therefore he loves us as much as he loves Jesus. Christian, God the Father loves you. Right now, knowing all you did last week, he loves you right now as much as he loves his son Jesus. So now, the question is, which do you really want? Do you want Mount Sinai in the Old Testament? Do you want to try to earn your way through the law like the Pharisees? You want to try to earn God's love as if you could? Do you want to hear your own voice thundering? Do you want to hear your own voice bragging about how good you are and what you do for God? Or do you want the man of transfiguration? Do you want to hear Jesus say to you over and over again, you are mine, you are my beloved. Every day is my wedding day with you. Exodus 19 Moses had the nation of Israel wash their garments to prepare to enter into covenant with the Lord. In other words, Moses was saying, this is your wedding day, Israel. Wash yourself, prepare yourself, wash your garments and prepare to enter into marriage covenant with Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. And now Jesus, on the other hand, has his garments turn radiant white. 16,000 watt brightness bleached whiter than 16,000 bottles of Clorox could do. Why? Why do his clothes turn white on the mountain? At Sinai, they had to wash their clothes and get them as white as you can to meet Yahweh. Here, it's Jesus' clothes which turn white on a mountain. Why? To show that he is God and to demonstrate that he would give his people his righteousness so that they could come into God's presence as his beloved children. Moses, on the other hand, had the nation bleach their clothes, if you will, to get ready and to to enter into marriage covenant with Yahweh, but Jesus shows up and his clothes light up. 
thus signifying that he would give his righteousness to sinners. He will fully obey the law for them. He will do what Adam did not do in the garden. He will do what the nation of Israel could not do because they kept failing miserably. He will obey the law for us because we can't do it in order to give us his righteousness so that we can stand unafraid in God's presence. He will wash us white as snow. This is the free gift of the gospel. We can come and be clothed in white. No stain, no guilt, no shame as we stand in God's presence. Will you come today? What you have to do is repent, which means you have to own up to your sin and your rebellion, that you've lived like you're the king of the universe and rebelled against God. That's repentance, admitting that, confessing that, turning from it, changing your mind, and then turning to Jesus and say, I trust in you alone. Will you come today? Yahweh descended in Exodus and gave the nation of Israel the law, the book of the covenant. But in the gospel, God doesn't just give us a book. He gives us himself. He gives us Jesus, his beloved eternal son, the perfect revelation of his father. He doesn't just give us information. He doesn't just give us rules. He doesn't give us interesting tidbits about himself or what his idiosyncrasies are. He gives us Jesus, his beloved son. He gives us himself, and he lets us get caught up and swept away in their love. God the Father is love. This is why he sent Jesus, and this is why the preacher of Hebrews could say in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus revealed the Father. And we see a snapshot of that radiance here in the transfiguration. Jesus revealed exactly who God is. A God of sacrificial love. A God who is outgoing and moves out to save sinners. The one who takes the initiative to save sinners. This is how God loves. He gives. He loves by giving. And what does he give? He gives himself. As Paul said in Ephesians 5, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The proof of God the Father's love was the sending of his Son. And the proof of Jesus' love for us was his death on the cross for sinners like us so that sinners like us could become adopted as God's children. Now what's interesting here in this verse is the Greek word that's used for the word beloved here in Mark 9 and also in in Ephesians 5 that Paul uses. It's the word that refers to an only child to whom the parents had devoted all of their love. It pertains to one who is the the only one of his or her class or type, but at the same time is particularly loved and cherished. That means that the eternal love that God the Father has always had for his son Jesus all the way back into eternity past. That eternal love that he expressed on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured, he now has for you, Christian, just as if you were his only child. Are you not flabbergasted by this truth? God loves each of us as if we were his only child. God loves you just as if you were the only child that he ever had. You are particularly loved and cherished by God with all your quirks. He loves you as if you were his only child that he's been loving for all of eternity just like Jesus. And Christian, because you're in union with Christ, he doles out his love 
and affection and devotion on you right now as if you were an only child. Have you ever seen parents who just have one child? That child receives everything, all their love, all the gifts, everything is just centered on that one child. And that's how God feels about you right now. It's absolutely astonishing. It's amazing. You are particularly loved and cherished by God. And the only way that any of this could be true for any of us is if Jesus went to the cross, which is exactly what Jesus will remind his disciples of once again. So look at verse 9. We're almost done. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So Jesus reminds them again that he must suffer. Now remember, what did God the Father just tell Peter, James, and John on the mountain? He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. And what's the first thing that Jesus says is they're coming down the mountain. He tells them that he must suffer, that he must die and rise again. And so they keep this information to themselves, and instead they ask Jesus about Elijah. But Jesus won't let them dodge the question, dodge the issue of his death. So he tells them that Elijah has already come, meaning John the Baptist, and just as John was killed, so too Jesus will die. Jesus wants them to know that he came to die, that he must suffer. So he takes their Elijah question, and he uses it to tell them once again that he must suffer. It's like, I'm not going to let this moment pass you by. You have to understand, I am going to die. And so on the mountain, God the Father said, listen to him. And the first words that they hear from Jesus after the transfiguration are, number one, don't tell anyone about my 16,000 watt bleach whiter than 16,000 bottles of Clorox clothes. Don't tell anyone about that until I come back from the dead. Number two, John the Baptist suffered and I will suffer. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. That's why Moses and Elijah visited me. I have done what Adam did not do. I have done what Israel could not do. And I have done what you obviously cannot do. But don't tell anyone about my transfiguration until I come back from the dead because I cannot fulfill all the law and the prophets unless I die. In order for me to say, it is finished, I have to die. I have to die to fulfill all the scriptures after my resurrection, then you can tell everyone that I am the point of the Old Testament. But make no mistake about it, I came to die. The cross is the focal point of the New Testament. And it's the focal point of the book of Mark on the last half of the book of Mark. And that's why J.I. Packer said this. Were I asked to focus the New Testament message in three words, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. And I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. 
That word propitiation simply means that on the cross, Jesus has turned away God's anger at our sins. So adoption through propitiation or adoption through the death of Jesus on our behalf. Packer says there's there's not a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. Adoption through Jesus turning away God's wrath at our sin on the cross. And so the only way that we can be adopted into God's family is if Jesus dies, is if Jesus turns away God the Father's wrath at our sin. And the only way that this is true for us, that God's children live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of their heavenly Father, the only way that happens is if, is if Jesus dies in our place. As R. Scott Clark says, in Christ, the flaming arrows of the law have been quenched for believers. We're not under condemnation. We're as righteous before God as Christ is, as if we had done all that he did for us. That imputed righteousness is the first benefit of trusting faith in Christ. It's crazy good news, and it's true if you're in union with Christ by faith. You are as righteous before God as Jesus is right now. I don't care what you did last night. Right now, Christian, you are as righteous before God as Jesus is. God sees you as if you had always obeyed. God sees you as if you had done all that Jesus did. That's why you live in his perpetual favor and unabated delight. Let that sink in. If you are a Christian, it is because God chose you. It is because he placed you forever in the sphere of his perpetual favor and unabated delight. And there is nothing you can do to get yourself into that sphere. And there is nothing you can do to get yourself out of that sphere. Why? Because God has done it all. It's all grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are so merciful and so kind and so loving that you give. You gave your son for us so that we could be adopted into your family and not just be your children, but be loved with the same kind of love that you love Jesus. And that's just mind-blowing. I pray that that truth would seep down into our pores this morning and that we would believe it with all of our hearts so that we can live for your glory. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.